Now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. David Weinberger. David Weinberger is a senior researcher at Harvard University's Berkman Center for the Internet and Society and is co-director of the Harvard Library Innovation Lab. He is the author of Small Pieces Loosely Joined and Everything is Miscellaneous and is co-author of The Clue Train Manifesto. His new book is Too Big to Know. Please give a warm welcome to David Weinberger. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you for having me. So the question tonight is, do we know anything anymore? And the answer is yes. So you can all go home now. Thank you. <laughs> and in some, ways, in, in, this, in some ways, we know more than ever in a very simple sense, just as when in the middle of the 19th century, we started putting facts into almanacs so that, uh, in particular, originally journalists would be able to just look something up instead of having to go to the Census Bureau to get information. Um, almanacs commoditized facts. They made those sorts of facts, anyway, cheap and easy. You know, for 10 bucks, you get yourself an almanac, you have a huge amount of information. Um, we generally agree that's a good thing. You know, don't hear a lot of pushback against almanacs. We currently have the same sort of thing going on with uh, Google and other search engines. You could Wolfram Alpha for a different class of question, ones that need computation. And Wikipedia has taken it to another level that we've commoditized not just um, facts and, and sort of simple things, but uh, the substance of, of encyclopedia articles. And those are available now. You just look them up, and there's a whole set of questions now that we are all used to um, just going onto our mobile device or, or laptop or whatever and getting the answer uh, from an encyclopedia. Um, we can argue about whether Wikipedia is a good thing. The answer to that is yes, it is a good thing, but we can argue if you want. Um, but the general trend of taking more than facts, taking um, the ne next level up of abstraction or complexity, encyclopedia articles, four million encyclopedia articles in, in the English language version of Wikipedia, and making them available for anybody who has web access, that's a pretty exciting, if the question is, do we know anything anymore, and how do we, we've just moved the bar up pretty high. But what I actually want to talk with you about today is the way in which knowledge is changing. So I'm actually not going to talk about what I just talked about. <laughs> I'm pretty much done with that. We, in the Q&A, we can always come back to it. But um, I want to look at the way in which knowledge is in crisis. And crisis just means a deciding point, right? So it doesn't mean that it's uh, negative, but it's, it's changing really rapidly. We know this because we can look at, oh, uh, any of the most secure, visible incarnations of knowledge in our culture. And very likely, that incarnation is trembling, it's falling over, it's shattering, it's not in good shape. So encyclopedias, Encyclopedia Britannica, the paper version, is no more. They're not gonna publish any more of them. It's an encyclopedia, it was, in my generation, that was the thing your parents spent a lot of money on to put in your house so you would have knowledge at your fingertips and so that everybody would know that the family is invested in providing knowledge at the fingertips. <laughs> and now, it's, they're going away, they're just going away. Uh, likewise, newspapers, which have been a, a symbol of our culture's commitment to, uh, to democracy, 
everybody being informed, very cheap, every day you read it, rolled up on your porch. Uh, not you, the newspaper, thrown rolled up. These days, reading it rolled up on your porch seems pretty appropriate, but that's not what I meant. So, um, newspaper, very important symbol of our commitment to uh, open information for an open democracy. Newspapers, as everybody knows, are in terrible crisis right now. We don't, nobody in this room, nobody in any room knows what's going to happen in 10 years, where newspapers are going to be. And that's a pretty amazing statement to make. We don't know what, whether they're going to be newspapers or what they're going to look like. And likewise for libraries. I, I work in, I literally work in a library, and every librarian is concerned about the future of libraries. If they're going, these, these buildings that generally have been modeled on Greek temples as a way of symbolizing um, the town's commitment to knowledge, and we don't know what's going to happen to them. And that's pretty amazing. So not, something's happen, happening to knowledge. And it seems that this, this has been, a, all that it's taken is a little touch of a hyperlink. And these most significant embodied uh, institutions just shattered, or on the verge of shattering. It, it is absolutely amazing. And so we should be asking, why did that happen? These are the things that we thought were pillars. Why did they fall over so quickly? The answer is not obvious, and I cannot give it to you. I don't know. Um, and so I'm posing this question, I am promising you, I will not answer it. <laughs> um, so let's first take a step back and remember what knowledge has been in the West. I'm only talking about Western knowledge, it's all I know anything at all about. Um, and it has a number of properties. I'm going to pick out just a couple, just a few, in the interest of time. One is that knowledge from the very beginning in the West has been that which is something that's filtered. It's relatively rare. It's winnowed. It's, it's the way you pan for gold. And that's built into the very idea of knowledge right from the start, generally taken back to, to the Greeks, uh, where the idea was many people say many things, believe many things, have many opinions. Tiny percentage of those are actually true and that you are justified in believing. Justified true belief, Plato's definition of knowledge. So right from the beginning, it was this sifting uh, of public opinion, opinions held by the public. Um, so it, it's winnowed, it's relatively rare. Second of all, it's settled. If we're still arguing about something as a culture, we say, well, we don't, we don't, we don't know yet. We just don't know. It's only when we have driven out all reasonable disagreement, and there's a world of, of, of um, pain in that, you know, what counts as reasonable. Nevertheless, once we have driven out uh, all reasonable disagreement, then we say, no, we know that, that's settled. The world is round, there's some crazies, they're marginalized, but no, the world is round. If we're still arguing about it, we don't know about it, we, we, it's not knowledge, and so knowledge has been that which is settled. And it is orderly. And from the very beginning, we have assumed, it's deeper than an assumption, but we have assumed in the West that knowledge is orderly, that order, is, in fact, is beautiful. It is a, uh, it's created by God in his infinite wisdom, not just true, but, but beautiful. And the Greeks believed that as well, without the God part. It was, it was logos, it's made, it was harmonious. Everything has one place in the order of things, and only one place. And to know what a thing is has been, in our culture, very explicitly, it has been to know that thing's place in that order. To know what an animal is, is to know how it relates to all other animals of, of its type and not of its type. That's straight out of Aristotle. And, and to deny that there is an order to the universe, because I know we're all modern, we're sitting here saying, thinking, the order of the universe? So, 
it's only been in the past few decades, and certainly um, in the past century, that the notion that there is no single order of the universe started to become commonplace. Until then, we, we absolutely thought that if you denied that there was a single order of the universe, you were either a heretic because you were denying God's plan, God's order, or you were a lunatic because you couldn't tell what anything was. There's no order. It's all swimming around. Is it one thing going to be another thing? We, this was baked into the notion of knowledge itself. Now it sounds medieval. Um, of course, it actually is medieval, but it's continuous throughout our culture, 2,500 years of, of our culture. Um, but that's very, very recent. So all of these things can be seen as a response to the fundamental fact, this fundamental challenge of knowledge, which is we have little tiny brains. We have less than three pounds of brain, and we want to understand the Big Bang. We want to understand what happened 14 billion years ago to create the universe. We want to know everything that's happened since, and we want to know where it's all going. It's a pretty ambitious for, you know, this much wet putty. <laughs> and we've known it. We've known that the world is, is, is too big to know. And so our strategy for dealing with this has been to reduce the amount of knowledge, to reduce what there is to be known. All right, so it's, we filter it, we, we only deal with only that which is settled is, counts as knowledge, and it's orderly in which everything ha has a single place. And so one of, our, one of our strategies has been to allow people to break off a brain-sized chunk of the world, about this big, and to really master it, to become experts at it. And then you can go to an expert, you can read her book, you can ask her in person, you can watch her on TV or whatever, ask the question that you have, get the answer, and this is the crucial part, stop asking. Because you got your answer from an expert. And if you don't believe the expert for whatever reason, you can say, oh, I'm sorry, that doesn't, really doesn't sound right. And the expert will say, well, you know, I, I did get my degree in chemistry from Oxford, and, so, and you'll say, ah, okay, I, good, good. And so we have, a, we, we have a backup system of stopping points. The expert is a stopping point, the expert and the expert's works are a stopping point, and then the credentialing system is a secondary system of stopping points. We need those stopping points because we've known the world is too big to know, and because those stopping points give the system their efficiency. It's because we can stop asking, we don't have to redo the experiment, we don't have to redo the research, we can believe the expert, and we should generally believe the expert, it's a pretty good system, then we can move on. We got that, we can go and now extend our knowledge, we can build on what we already knew. So it's the efficiency of the system that has made this system of knowledge so valuable and has also made us the dominant species on the planet. It works pretty well. But it's all based upon the notion that we need, in the, given the magnitude of the world, we need to reduce. Um, it turns out that it is absolutely not an accident that the properties of knowledge in this system that we've devised for ourselves are precisely the properties of the medium of knowledge, which has been writing and paper and books and libraries. Though the properties of knowledge are the properties of its medium, not an accident, not at all an accident. So that, for example, um, knowledge is filtered. Well, that's how books work. Many more manuscripts come into the publisher than get published. Many more books are published than make it into a library. A million books last year. Your library did not take them all in. It took a tiny percentage of them because that's all that it could do. Um, so, settled. Knowledge is settled. That's the way, uh, sorry, you're winnowed and edited. That's the way um, the medium works. Settled. When you, when you um, 
when you publish something, when you write it down using the medium of knowledge, you cannot take the ink back. You print your book, it's, it's out there, and if it has errors, as I'm going to say all books do, well, that's too bad. They're, they're printed and they're done. Settled, knowledge is settled just in the way that ink settles into paper. Knowledge is orderly. Everything has one spot and only one spot and has a right spot. That's how libraries work. That's how anything that, any physical object that we're organizing works. But that's how, that's how libraries work. You, if you have a book, you can only put it, uh, and you're organizing things by, by subject, as we do when we have open shelves, as typically we do in the United States. You, you have to pick one subject that the book is primarily about and put it next to the other books about that subject. Most books are about more than one subject. They, they get more than one classification by professional uh, catalogers. But you pick one because in the physical world, everything has one spot and only one spot. And we've, we have made what is in some ways the tragic assumption in, that that is true of the world of ideas as well. It makes the world very orderly, but at a great cost. At the same price that we pay in the, for the limitations of the physical, we pay in the order of ideas as well. It's not an accident that the properties of knowledge reflect the properties of its medium. And maybe most important of these is the system of knowledge itself has been a system of stopping points. Books, I write books, we all love books, I'm not going to bother saying good things about books because you don't need me to. Books are a disconnected medium. And I don't mean any, so I know that books are written out of social milieu, and I know that they point out to other books and bring in little snippets of other books because that's all you can fit between the pages. So I, I, I do know that. I'm saying something stupider than that. Namely, a physical book is physically disconnected from every other book, right? That's all I'm saying. But it determines so much about how we think knowledge works and what expertise is. When you are writing, a big part of the task of writing a book is figuring out exactly how much the reader needs within those, between those covers because you know the reader is going to find it very difficult. You can't just say, well, you need to understand this to continue in my book. Please go to the library and check out some other set of books. You can't do that because it's too hard for a user to go to the library, get on a bus, find a metropolitan city in the library, and look for the book and read it. And so the whole task of writing a book is to get something complete between the covers, something that masters your topic. You design your topic as the thing that will fit between covers. We've divided up the world into book-size objects. The medium of knowledge is disconnected, has been disconnected, and consists of stopping points. Even footnotes are stopping points. Very few people actually look up the book in the, in the footnote. Usually we consult the footnote because we have a question about the veracity or, uh, of the statement, and we say, oh, I see, it came from here, and we stop. Footnotes generally are stopping points. They're nails that hammer things down. They're rarely, rarely do we use them as links to go out and, uh, and open up because we, you have to go back to the library to do that. But now you don't, because we have a new medium of knowledge that is hugely connected. You can think about links, hyperlinks, you know, the blue underlying text as a new type of punctuation. The old types of punctuation generally tell you where to stop. Hyperlinks tell you how to continue, and they let you continue with the smallest possible human motion, which is that, which you probably can't see more than four rows back. It's me flicking my finger. It is literally the small, next to blinking, it's, about, it's the smallest motion we can make. 
and we use that now to bring to us from around the world anything, anything, anything of billions and billions of pages. We're right in Carl Sagan territory here. This is pretty much amazing. So now we have a medium of knowledge which is usually connective. It's my hypothesis that therefore the properties of knowledge are becoming the properties of this new medium, which are very different from the properties of the old medium. And knowledge itself, my hypothesis goes, is becoming a network, lives at the level of the network. And so I want to look at a few knowledge networks um, because I, again, don't mean anything fancy by that term either. It's a, a knowledge network is not some new piece of software you should go out and buy. It's the things we're already doing. Um, so I want to look at a few of them. The first is, is science, um, which I know fairly broad. But um, so if you're Einstein and it's 1905 and you have uh, you know you have a pretty good idea, you submit it to a, a, a um, high prestige journal. It goes through a peer review process where uh, qualified physicists look at it and it gets published, um, and it's you know it's pretty important. And if you're Einstein. And it's 1923, and your hypothesis is confirmed by an experiment. You make it onto the front page of the New York Times, as he did, in an article about this big, not continued on any other page. It's this big, says Einstein's theory confirmed by the eclipse, uh, by bending of the light um, visible during an eclipse. So you are sitting at home, you get your daily paper, 1923, you get the Times, there's the box, you say, wow, that's really, I'm really interested in this, I'd like to know more. Too bad you can't, that box is it, you had this much, if you wanted more, unless you were living in, a, in working in a philosophy, excuse me, in a physics department, physics lab, very unlikely you could find out anything more until some weeks later, maybe somebody will publish an article about it. And they probably won't. That's where we were. Peer review, academic journal that went to a few, a relative, relative hand, handful of, uh, of libraries and people, and maybe, rarely, occasionally, a, a very limited newspaper article. If it's 2011 and you work at the Large Hadron Collider and you come up with this data that suggests, oh, you know where I'm going with this, sir, <laughs> that <laughs> neutrinos go faster than light and thus Einstein actually was wrong, you don't do any of those things that Einstein did. Um, you're f uh, familiar with, this, uh, with, this, with these results, and I, I should mention, in case I forget later on, it turns out the data was wrong, were wrong. It was a loose optical cable that caused this, uh, this false data. Nevertheless, at the time, it was very conceivably the most important data of the century, literally since Einstein. It would overthrow Einstein. So they didn't go to a peer-reviewed journal. They went to a site called archive.org, A-R-X-I-V.org, which is a site that any scientist with any standing can publish anything on. You can publish your first draft, speculation, raw data that's been uncleaned up, final drafts that's waiting approval, and so forth. Uh, and you say what the level of, of uh, the quality of the information is. But, and when you go to archive. you know that's what it is. It's a site for people to post basically raw data. So this prestigious group of scientists with amazing data posts it without peer review at a site where anybody can post anything. Absolutely the right thing to do. 
because their interest was to get this information out as quickly as possible so it could be discussed. This is exactly what we want scientists to do. We want them to get especially controversial data out so that everybody can dis discuss it. And what happened? Everybody discussed it. Um, there's a really uh, good book called Reinventing Discovery by Michael Nielsen um, about uh, the networking of science, in fact. Um, he uses this example when, he's, when he gives talks. Um, so within a few months, 80 papers were published at archive.org about this, and obviously all around the web, all sorts of, of post discussions of every sort from everybody, uh, from top scientists to uh, wonderful science journalists to high school students to complete idiots and morons who had the stupidest <laughs> ideas imaginable, people with other data, with hypotheses, everybody could publish and link to everything else. And so very quickly this web emerged of ideas and thoughts and hypotheses, um, some of which were great and some of them not worth anything. Uh, if you had, if, if you were looking for an explanation, no matter what level of expertise you were at, you could find it. If you didn't have the math, I don't have the math, you could still find explanations that were actually pretty good. And if you didn't, didn't understand those, you were not stuck in a little New York Times newspaper rectangle. You could get somebody else explaining. You had a question, you could pose it. And if you were a top scientist, obviously there are wonderful discussions going on as well. The ecosystem of knowledge is filled up. Every niche was filled. It seems to me that knowledge about this topic lived in that network. That that network was richer than the single article, the original article that was posted. And that that network was richer because of the differences and disagreements. If everybody was saying exactly the same thing, that network would have zero value. It's only because of the differences and the disagreements, the extensions, the elaborations, some of them going off the deep end, but some not. It's only because of all those differences that that network of knowledge had value. Which means that knowledge no longer is only that about which we have driven out all disagreement. It is also that about which, and gains value from uh, containing difference. It's that about which we also disagree. Uh, many different perspectives um, that don't always sync up very well. This is a very big change in what we think of knowledge, what we value in knowledge. Um, and it has both positive and negative consequences. One of the positive, it's pretty scary, I, I will acknowledge, right? because it's much better when we can just nail things down. But the positive side of this is that we are very rapidly, over the past 15 years, we've been evolving new ways to live together in difference and, di and disagreement. We've also been learning new ways to yell at each other with increasing volume. Um, uh, the, the lack of civility in much of our political discourse, I think we're all aware of. Nevertheless, so I'm going to point to something positive. So in the 19th century, scientists spent a lot of time, way more than, well, way more than they had to, arguing about whether the platypus, which had been recently discovered by the West, whether the platypus, uh, what sort of animal it was, because it didn't fit into the nice Linnaean taxonomy that we, that we were using. It, it was a mammal, except it had a bird's beak and it laid eggs. You know, it was sort of not possible. In fact, um, some British scientists, when one was delivered to them with eggs in it, uh, assumed it had to be a hoax because it, it, it's too upsetting to the perfection of the order. It just couldn't be. So they, they spent a lot of time arguing about this. Now we would not have that argument. 
the, at a site like Encyclopedia of Life, eol.org, which is a wonderful, wonderful site, every species gets a, a page. And eol does not care what you call the platypus. You can call it platypus, water mole, any of its, it has a couple of scientific names in any language. They don't care. They collect all of these names, let you search on all of them. So we don't have to have that argument. What do we call it? But more important, if I think it should be taxonomized here, it should be in, the, you know, in, in this category, this classification, but you think it's really in this one, it doesn't matter. EOL stores taxonomies and lets us see, we, when we go to it, we can specify which taxonomy, taxonomy we want to see it placed into, how we want to see it ca categorized. And so I say, yeah, clearly this one. You say, no, clearly that one, good. We're over that argument. We don't have to have that argument anymore. We can get on with the fruitful collaboration about the venom in its claws or whatever it is that we're, because they have venomous claws. I know they look cute, but they have venomous claws. <laughs> so we're getting very good at dealing with um, differences, maintaining differences, but still being able to, coll to collaborate um, uh, on projects and ideas. Um, you can see this in some of the standards that are emerging on the web, which I won't talk about unless somebody wants me to, um, such as the linked data standard, which is a re really, if you're thinking about releasing big data, a lot of data, you should be looking at linked data as a way of doing it precisely because it allows us to be talking about the same thing in different terms and yet to be able to understand that we're talking about the same thing, especially when computers are looking at the data. Okay, so um, some lessons from science. The first is that peer review is wonderful, except peer review isn't actually all that wonderful. Peer review has a lot of problems uh, with it. Um, peer review has been, it, it's very, it does a lot of good things, but the peer review process also tends to um, homogenize opinion. Um, in any case, peer review does not scale. If you want to get a lot of knowledge, a lot of, at web scale, you can't have a set of peer reviewers uh, looking at everything that's going up on the web. It doesn't scale. Second thing is that in a knowledge ecology, you can fill every niche, which is really important because it allows many more people to know many more things and to participate. And within um, knowledge networks, um, knowledge can contain difference. Okay, so a second knowledge network is the... Um, is the learning environment that software, software developers have created for themselves. So if you're a software developer, especially compared to 20 years ago, if you have a question, you have a problem, um, you can get answers so much quicker now than uh, ever. In fact, I'm willing to offer as a hypothesis that, um, as a thesis, that software developers have created for themselves the single best rapid learning environment in human history. We can argue about it, but at least it's pretty good. So if you want to uh, learn a new programming language, just Google it, you'll get thousands of tutorials, some of which are fantastic. If you have a question, you'll go to a site like Stack Overflow. Um, when you're talking about web scale, it becomes increasingly unlikely, just improbable, that you are the first person to have asked any particular question. Whatever it is, somebody very likely has already asked it. They very likely, if you're an engineer, have asked it at Stack Overflow, which is a site where you post questions and anybody can respond, and you vote responses up or down. Um, and then people iterate 
on those answers. That is, they look at them, they make a small change, small improvement. They say, oh, that's, you know, that's a good answer, but it won't work in Internet Explorer. Here's how you fix it. And somebody else says, yeah, that's good, but uh, you can make it run faster. Here's how you fix it. And at the end of the process, you have an answer that's been looked at by a number of developers, has been improved, and you just take the code, and it's done. You can now use it. Um, as you are progressing in your project, you may well decide to make it open source and thus reusable by anybody. You'll put it at a site like GitHub, where there's now over 3 million of these projects. Anybody can use it, improve it, and in, in improving it or modifying it for some other purpose, they, they post it there also. So you get these cascades of, of useful programs. You just take it. Uh, at the end of the process, you might just post your work as a library for any developer to use. There's some incredible, the, the V3 library, is an, for example, is an incredible library that enables a developer who may not know anything at all about displaying information in, um, in visual form. You just plug it in, and now, now you can. It is um, amazing. So here's, a, here's an environment that is extremely productive. Um, and I would point to a few lessons from this as well. The first is that um, to develop this sort of environment, you need enough humility that you're willing to say, I don't know, and to say it in public to your peers. Second of all, you need a type of generosity in which you're willing to work in public to improve somebody else's, uh, to help somebody else and to improve somebody else's answer. Third thing, that, lesson that we learned from this, I think, is the power of iteration. Um, making, going back, repeated small improvements. When you're working at scale, when you have so many, with two billion people on the internet these days, we're told, um, having even a tiny group of, relative, relatively tiny group of people who are making small changes can improve something uh, dramatically. Iteration works at scale. And the fourth lesson is about public learning. Um, because in our, cult in our culture, we've been, we've, we've assumed that education is a process of a teacher and a student working together um, to improve the, the student's mind, the student's character and soul. And does so in private, relatively in private, the privacy of a classroom. And what we're seeing increasingly on, on the web, among software developers, but many other places, is this notion that Education actually, learning actually should be itself a public act. We should benefit not just because the student has become a better person, but we should benefit because we can see and participate in the act of education itself. And that's what you see at these software development sites. The, the third um, knowledge network I'd, I'd like to mention is um, uh, Flickr as an example. Are you familiar with Flickr? No, so many, many heads not. And it's a site where you can post photos. So a few years ago, this, the Library of Congress came across a stash of color photos from World War II. These are pretty, they're wonderful photos. You, sh you should go to Flickr and just look up Library of Congress. There's fantastic stuff there. And so as an experiment, which was very successful, they posted uh, a couple thousand of these at Flickr. Um, so that we, the citizens, can view them, but also because they wanted we, the citizens, and the entire world to, to improve what we know about these photos, improve the metadata, the information about the photos. And so people did. And Flickr has a number of tools for doing this, one of which is tagging. So any photo at Flickr, anybody can put in uh, usually a one-word um, tag, a description. Um, and then you click on that tag, and you'll see all the other photos tagged that way. So if there's one particular one uh, photo that I like, which is um, of a woman in a factory uh, with beautifully done hair, um, 
And it got tagged a number of, you know, 75 different ways. That's the maximum at Flickr, very quickly. And so some of the tags are things that professional taggers would, would use, catalogers would, 1942, the photographer's name, and so forth. Um, and some of them were interesting. They were quaff, for example. It was a nice word. If you're looking for hairstyles, you'll find a whole bunch. One was red because her lips, I hadn't noticed, her lips are very bright red. Um, and so this tag acted sort of as an aesthetic guide to the, to the picture. And one of them is Rosie the Riveter. This is not Rosie the Riveter. This, this tag is inaccurate. It's false. It's wrong. It's not something that a professional would have done because professionals don't tag things with, with falsehoods. Nevertheless, if you were interested in the role of women in manufacturing in World War II and you clicked on the Rosie the Riveter tag, you would get um, photos of a cross flicker that have something to do with or are reminiscent of. It's actually a pretty good tag, even though it's wrong. And so from this, I only want to draw a single lesson. Um, I, you could draw lessons about public participation and about iteration, all of which are, are important. Um, but there's just one I want to draw, which is that Flickr is a mess. The tags there are a mess. I work in a library. I work with catalogers. I, I, I'm in the basement, literally in the basement of the library, and I, we're, or our space is inhabited by catalogers. They're amazing experts. It's an incredible skill. It's really a difficult skill. They're careful. Flickr isn't. You can tag that picture. You could call it Aunt Gwyn because she happens to look like your Aunt Gwyn. And it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. It's a personal tag. Flickr is a complete mess. You, cl you click on Rosie the Riveter, you'll get a bunch of stuff. You don't know why anybody tagged it that way. It is a mess, and it cannot be cleaned up because who's going to do it? The peer review panel for Flickr? It it's getting thousands of photos a minute are being posted there. there it's never going to be cleaned up uh, to, uh, professionally. That's okay because messiness is how you scale meaning. If you want to know the meaning of things, where meaning is contextual, it's, it's expressed often by links or by tags, by relationships, you, get, you have to put up with messiness. That's how you scale meaning. Meaning, in fact, is incredibly messy. So I want to go back now to the question that I said I'm not going to answer, which is, why, why is knowledge in crisis? Why is it undergoing this sort of change now? Why are the institutions of knowledge, in particular, the traditional why are they falling over? And I can't answer it. I want to give um, something short of an answer. It was more like a hunch than an answer. So if you look at the properties, old properties of knowledge and the new properties of knowledge, um, there are things like knowledge was edited, curated, filtered, winnowed, and now it's inclusive and it's scaled. It's a big mess of everything. If it, if it was rare, now we are overwhelmed by knowledge. If it was settled, it's now, man, is it unsettled. And, and it's, it's, it's horrible in many ways, because some of the things that are unsettled are things like, um, things that really should be settled. Inoculations does not ca don't cause autism. And we have children who are not getting inoculated because of false beliefs. Our president was not born in Kenya. There is no further evidence that can be imagined. The doctor who delivered him is saying he was not born in Kenya. There is nothing left. The fact that we cannot settle these things is galling and dangerous at times. It's also amazing and ennobling and enriching and, and, and um, engaging. So it goes from settled to unsettled. 
It goes from orderly, single beautiful order of the universe, to messy-like flicker times a gazillion. And it goes from contained in boxes on the front page of the New York Times, it goes from contained in, uh, within books, within libraries, within shelves, within skulls, it goes to linked. Linked beyond trillions of links, possibly, at this point. Beyond human capacity even to imagine how many links there are. So if you look at those adjectives, the new adjectives, inclusive, overwhelming, um, unsettled, messy, linked, those are, I'm saying, properties of the internet, of the network. They're properties of knowledge, but they're also pretty much properties of what it means to be a human trying to know the world. It's how it's always been. And it seems to me possible that one of the reasons why we, ha we are letting our institutions fall over so quickly, and this is not an alien force that's knocking them over, it's us. It's us that's doing it. And one of the reasons that we're doing it, perhaps, is because we knew there was always something impossible and even inhuman in the old idea of knowledge, of the perfect, settled, everybody agrees, eternally true, uh, true no matter who says it, independent of humans. We knew there was always something not human about that. And the new knowledge that we are building, the network knowledge, we can, we can and should argue about whether it gives us a more true picture of the world. But it seems to me to be much less arguable, much more true and settled, that network knowledge gives us a truer picture of what knowledge is and what it means to be a human who's trying to know a world that is very, very big. Thank you. My name is Ken McLeod. Uh, have you explored the uh, political implications of the fragmentation of knowledge that you're describing? Yes, <laughs> to some degree. Uh, yeah, it's a, and I don't know. Um, I, like everybody else, I, I'm... It's, like everybody else, I am dismayed at the way in which um, the accessibility of information at least in some cases, results in the hardening of false opinion. Um, and so this is, this is a really long and complex <laughs> topic. Um, I'm also hugely, uh, you know, um, I, I'm hugely um, excited and if I say I'm a depressed optimist about this, <laughs> um, so, uh, fundament so fundamentally, uh, we, are, we are in such a wonderful position and we are seeing such amazing things so, uh, in politics. Um, we know, uh, those of, I uh, won't point at you, sir, but th those of us my age know that um, it used to be that you would go down to the candidate's uh, local headquarters and you'd ask for a position paper and they'd have maybe a dozen, dozen different position pa papers and they'd be one mime mimeographed. It's a type of printing. Um, <laughs> handout and that, that would be it. That, it was like the box in the newspaper. That's all you would get. And now we just take for granted endless information. Endless, endless, which is, can be a distraction, but is an amazingly good thing. We are much, much smarter about politics now than we ever were and about, about governance. Um, even though some people are really wrong about it, but that's just, you know, that's, that's my opinion. Um, so the, the, the terrible worry is the echo chamber effect. Um, Cass Sunstein is the person most closely associated with this. Eli Pariser has a book called The Filter Bubble, which is a really good book um, on one aspect of it. The, the echo chamber says that when people, the argument 
says that when human beings are given many different varieties of, of voices to listen to, we will tend to listen to people who are like us, who are saying the things that we believe. And, which seems to be true, I don't even, you know, that seems to me to be, yeah, that's right. Echo chamber argument says, and therefore, and this is in contest, and therefore um, they become more uh, convinced of their own views, not more open, more convinced, and furthermore they become more polarized in their views. And we certainly know that this happens at times. Um, the question is how much and is it better than, are we better off than we were before the net and what can we do to fight this human tendency to, uh, so there's a really important, uh, all of which is true, um, something really to worry about, but there's an important baby in this bathwater that I, I don't want thrown out, um, which is that sure we all should be open to all points of view, but we're not. We can't be. We never have been, we never will be. It's not, it's because conversation doesn't, Conversation assumes a great similarity, the same, same language, same, some shared interest that you're going to talk about, shared norms for how conversation proceeds. Understanding assumes a, a, to understand something is to take the new and to assimilate it to the old, to our old way of believing. And that inevitably confirms what you used to believe, because you've just got, that's not a fault of conversation or of understanding, it's, 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 it's condition. It, it, you need that in order to do it. So while we do need to fight the echo chamber effect, which is real, we also should remember that we need, that talking with people with whom you agree and understanding things, the, the new in terms of the old, we're situated creatures who um, only who are who we are because of our culture, our language, our parents, our psychology, our sociology. We can never step entirely outside of an echo chamber. My name is, is David Trilling, and, and I was, um, was a little bit, uh, didn't completely understand. You said, you, you said that, all the, that all these things are falling, or the, the institutions or whatever, and we don't really know why. And, but we do, and the reason is, it's, the part you didn't talk about, it's economics, right? We could still have a, an Encyclopedia Britannica if there, if there was a way to fund it. And there, you could have it, you could also have Wikipedia. But there isn't a way to fund it because of the economics is a problem. The same thing with newspapers, so, and a number of other things. My question is, um, some of those things are gonna disappear and we will never have them again. Uh, a lot of things are based on newspapers, and if there's not an economics, then there's not a way to pay for for various things that economically are not, don't work in this new system. So I was wondering if you could address that. Economics is certainly a part of it. I think it's actually a little bit less for Britannica than it was, than it is for newspapers. Uh, Britannica, if there were demand for the paper version, they could keep on selling the paper version. Um, newspapers had a large portion of their, their base, their economic base, uh, pulled out by Craigslist, um, which is a little bit different, and I think makes your point um, better. Certainly economics is a very important um, part of it. There's, we, I would never have predicted Wikipedia. Had Jimmy Wales come to me in 2001 and said, you know, I have this idea, we're gonna, and explained it to me, I probably would have laughed in his face and said, you know, sure, go ahead and try, but it's never gonna happen. Are you crazy? It's crazy. It is crazy. It's crazy. And the economics of Wikipedia are, are fundamentally crazy. Four million articles written for free I, by volunteers. So I don't know what will replace newspapers. I, I, I just absolutely do not, including it may be newspapers that replace newspapers, uh, digital or even paper. I don't know. Um, 
when the economics of newspapers have changed as they had, it also gives us the opportunity to rethink what we want newspapers to do. And one, so this is not going to answer your question, but I don't know the answer to your question. But let me raise, say one, uh, take it in a slightly different direction. So one of the premises of the newspaper, um, is, we've already lost. And we've lost precisely because we've gotten used to the scaling of knowledge on the internet. So one of the premises of the newspaper and of the nightly news report, and give us 22 minutes, we'll give you the world, which where I grew up was one of the claims of a, of a local news radio station. 22 minutes, we'll give you the world. One of the premises of newspapers was that there is such a thing as the news. And it made sense, it therefore makes sense for uh, professionals who are fantastic at their job and working for democracy and underpaid, all that. It makes sense for them to uh, figure out what the news is and to give it to us in that rectangular um, object that they would roll up and throw onto our porch. It made sense to us to think that we could sit, if we sat every day in front of the, the television for 30 minutes, we would get the news. We have now, I think, lost the notion that there is such a thing as the news. That the sense of mastery of world events that says competent people with a good system can put this together. Uh, no, they can't. I don't think it's an accident that Time and Newsweek and what used to, until recently, was called the, the, Week, in Re, the Week in Review from the New York Times have all given up on giving us the Week in Review. None of those things even claim to be giving us the week's news. They used to do that. You used to get time or Newsweek, go through it, and now you got the week's news. And they, they have given up on that claim. And I think it's in part because we've given up on, on the notion that there's a, a box this big that we can fill, fill with the news. While it's great to be able to go on the internet and get breaking news, breaking news is often unsettled. And by the end of the day, you've got at least a version, a first draft, that you can look at. So do you think that, kind of counterintuitively, the value of these seemingly outdated notions of filtering and settling are something that could keep newspapers, give newspapers their niche uh, to go forward? Obviously, the economics of newspapers is a whole other problem. So I've read newspapers for, you know, all my life, I was brought up with a family that got two newspapers every day, um, and I don't read them anymore. And so I, I'm a single data point and should not be trusted. Um, <laughs> but I realized that looking back over my lifetime of reading newspapers, that most of my lifetime of reading newspapers was skipping over the articles I didn't care about, first of all. And second of all, there's still nothing. When I grew up, and even now, there's nothing about Africa. You know, there's basically nothing. Um, Nigeria has the population of Japan. It's an oil-producing uh, country. It's as important economically in that sense to us as, as Japan is. We don't cover well, The only thing we cover in Nigeria is, is scandal. You know, it's a, um, newspapers, the box inevitably, inevitably, you can't help it, reflects judgment and therefore re reflects bias. Um, and good newspapers do a great job. They do a better job than the bad ones. The bad ones just pander to our Kardashian nerves. The good ones <laughs> try to give us um, you know, stuff that they think is actually important, and which will include Nigeria on occasion. Nevertheless, I can't imagine why I want that as opposed to having that and um, I'm a little interested in FCC policy, just because you know, I am. 
it's, you know, if there's an article a year in the newspaper, that's surprising. But I get articles every day, so to speak, or articles, posts, uh, links from the mailing list that I'm on and the, and the feeds that I pull in. Why would I not, why would I want to stick with the box? The box has stuff I don't care about. I don't care about sports news at all. Most business news, I, 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 maybe I should be, but I'm not terribly interested in. The whole sections of newspaper, I just, you know, leave on the bus. I, you know. <laughs> Why, why do I want only that? Why don't I want the pieces of that that I, I think are important, and in part because I trust other people's judgment to tell me what's important, but also all the rest? And from that single data point, me, it makes me concerned about the future of, of, of a business that gets its value from judging for me what I am interested in. What I was hoping you could talk a little about is uh, how this change in knowledge and knowledge, knowledge structures actually affects knowledge producers as well. Because we can talk about the digital divide and how you know, there are whole swaths of the, of the world's population that don't have access to knowledge via computers, but it's obviously so much less than the number of people who will never have a book published, who will never um, be able to attend a university and therefore have a degree to back them up as a valid source of knowledge. Um, and so I can't help but feel it's only a positive thing that in this new sort of knowledge society, there are so many voices out there that are being heard by somebody um, that are um, potentially, uh, that are potentially, you know, not heard before. And I was hoping you'd speak a little about that. People like me, that is, who, you know, say the sorts of things that I say, because um, I'm not sure if it's clear from this talk, I am hugely uh, positive about the internet. Uh, I, I'm thrilled and amazed by what it's doing. Um, so people like me are sometimes accused with some justice of being techno-determinists. That is, we talk as if the internet does stuff regardless of the person. It does stuff to us as if, it, you know, as if we didn't have any um, agency. Um, and it must be the same in all cultures. And if, so let me be clear. I, this is very culturally specific. It's also specific to socioeconomic, how people respond to to the internet. Nevertheless, it seems to me there are a couple things that anybody who goes on the internet, even in a terribly rights-repressed uh, country, um, there are a few things that you do inevitably learn from the internet. Uh, one is that things can be linked, that the world is messy. Because you can't go on, if you're on the internet, you're going to see links and you're going to click on them. And so that way of constructing the world, seeing it as linked together, and you being the person who determines how to go from one to the other, which is the essential box question as well, uh, you get that, even if you're in a terribly right... The second thing that you get, I think, is um, a recognition that much of what you're reading was written by people like you, that you have or should have the power to contribute in a way that the old media just... you couldn't. Uh, and finally, the third thing that we, I think everybody learns from the internet um, is that the world is way more interesting than the old broadcast media of books and newspapers, magazines, TV, and radio, way more interesting than, than that world that those media ever led on. Those are three powerful lessons just from the basic experience of the internet. And if that makes me a techno-determinist, so be it. I don't understand how looking at Wikipedia works. I, I don't understand that, but I know how WebMD works. Okay, so if you have a headache and you Google Mayo Clinic, they talk to you about relaxation. 
But if you go to WebMD, which is paid for by Big Pharma, you go directly to the most expensive migraine medications there are. The system works. On Watergate, you could follow the money. But most people can't follow the money. They're not doctors. They don't know Mayo Clinic is objective and Web, WebMD doesn't sound like it's Big Pharma. It sounds like a bunch of doctors. So I think you're way underestimating how money and profit, and we can make a buck out of this, if you look at Google that's, that's designed by number of hits, there's way more min misinformation and misleading going on here driven by money, and you haven't even touched on that. Uh, no, it was a short talk. So um, you are, of course you're correct. There's a huge amount of misinformation on the web, and some of it is venal. Some of it is, in fact, uh, uh, put there knowingly um, to make money. Um, well, yes and no. So you can, everybody can get fooled, um, and there is no certainty. Absolutely. Um, there's a book by Howard Rheingold that just came out called I Forget. Somebody please Google it. For God's sake, you all have devices. Um, well, that's too bad. Um, that just came out about internet literacy. It makes. It, it makes the, the true assumption that we need to be in upping our game for ourselves and our children um, so that we can begin to recognize, as well as we can, always imperfectly, sites that are trying to cheat us in, in, in knowledge. Um, it's, it's, you're right, it's never going to be perfect. There's a huge amount of misinformation. Um, and some of it is just awful and devastating. Some of it will kill you. Okay. <laughs> it's absolutely correct. And yet, if you are somebody in the knowing game, if you're somebody whose your job or your, your passion is to know things, I think everybody here would agree that this is the greatest time to be trying to learn and to know? What you're saying is correct, but it's, there's also this other thing happening. So, Jonathan Collins. Uh, I just, I guess in light of this new way that you say that knowledge is behaving in our society now, um, based upon this, right? So what are the implications for like early childhood development and like uh, childhood education? I mean, what? Uh, so there is, uh, there's a growing literature which I don't know about the effects of the internet on ch uh, childhood development. Um, we're getting our first generation of children who's growing up with it. Uh, probably everybody knows about or has seen the YouTube video. So th this is not a serious, uh, this isn't serious research, but you, you know the YouTube video of the two-year-old with the magazine? He's brought up with the iPad and keeps trying to click on the magazine and it's broken. Um, so I don't know what, that's, what the internet's going to do to that child's SAT scores um, or her ability to um, uh, to uh, think through long problems. This is Nicholas Carr's book, The, the Shallows, um, which, I'm sorry, this is going to sound like a plug. I, um, I actually talk about it in most of a chapter in, in the book, and I have mixed feelings about um, So it, he points to research that shows, in fact, the internet um, impedes long-form thought. Um, that, that may, that may be, turn out to be true. Um, that, it's a scientific question, I'm not a, not a scientist. 
Um, it's not going to stop us from being on the internet. And I suspect that our, our uh, forms of speaking and arguing will alter to fit the new ways of thinking, if indeed we are, it is uh, causing new ways of thinking. And so when the new, new generation grows up and they look back, they'll, be, they'll think that our way of thinking uh, is a sort of quaint and sort of 17th century, <laughs> ornate, all those long thoughts strung together. <laughs> but I, I, in short, I don't know. <laughs> no. Thank you very much. <laughs>